recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink of Christagenia.org. This is Christagenia on Talk Show, and it is Friday, September 21st, 2012. And this year is going by way too quickly. Last week I had an excellent vacation with a beautiful woman who has become a major part of my life. And I am thankful to Yahweh for that. I want to thank Mark Downey and Kenneth Lent for last Friday's program, which was entitled, Is the Constitution Christian? I have to um, apologize for taking practically all week to get it posted to Christagenia. It was posted this morning. It's been on, it's also been posted at kinsmanredeemer.com at Mark Downey's website. It's been posted there for a few days. That, pro, that program last week well, was actually applauded by a lot of people who spoke to me over the past week, and, and I hope to get the chance to listen to it myself as soon as possible. I would also like to thank Mark for his two kind words in reference to me and my work. I want to talk a little about Paul's gospel and the challenge to my often repeated statement that Paul's gospel was Luke's gospel, which I will still maintain. The challenge is based upon some of Paul's words in Galatians, as if I didn't know they existed when I made my assertions concerning Luke's gospel. In an email, a gentleman, probably a well-meaning gentleman, I'm sure, told me that I was wrong concerning Paul's gospel because of Paul's words in Galatians at chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where Paul says, Now I point out to you, brethren, the good message which is announced by me that it is not according to man, neither from man have I received it, nor have I been taught but through a revelation of Yahshua Christ. And I would not dispute those words. Yet there is no conflict between these words and my statement. Once the word gospel is understood in each context, this is an example of a requirement in understanding the context before you understand a statement. The word gospel, as I translated in Galatians chapter 10, chapter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, which I just read, the word gospel, the Greek word for gospel, simply means good message. And Paul received the good message of the coming of the Messiah directly from Christ himself when he realized that Christ indeed was the Messiah. An event which is described in part several times in Luke's book of Acts, for which there is no doubt it is certainly from this that Paul was better able to understand the Old Testament gospel. Yes, there is an Old Testament gospel, which he preached consistently and by his own admission that the life and passion of Christ were in many ways foretold in the prophets, that the redemption at the hands of Christ was foretold in the prophets. That's the Old Testament gospel, the gospel before it happened, the prophecies of the deliverance and redemption for Israel to come. 
But in the context of my statements concerning Luke's gospel being that of Paul also, I am not talking about the realization that Christ was indeed the Messiah, which Paul learned in that event on the road to Damascus. Rather, I am talking about the detailed eyewitness accounts compiled and left to us by Luke, which is what Luke's gospel is. Paul, having traveled with Luke, who was his constant companion for many years, must have employed those accounts which Luke compiled in his teachings, since Yahshua did not sit Paul down and give all of them to Paul in that detail. If he had done so, we may certainly have had an indication of that. We may have a fifth gospel. While we call Luke's writing a gospel, it is by no means the gospel. That's the point of confusion with this gentleman who sent me the email. None of the individual gospels are the gospel. None of the gospel records which we have are complete by themselves. They are not complete by themselves because none of them is a totally complete witness. And because the complete gospel must include the records of the Old Covenant promises as well as the records of the New Covenant fulfillments. Otherwise, we wouldn't understand the New Covenant fulfillments. We wouldn't have a clue what this was all about. Paul received the realization that Yahshua was the Messiah from Christ himself. And all of the implications of that which Paul could realize, having already known the prophecies from Old Testament scriptures, are indeed the message called the gospel or good news. Because the coming of the Messiah means salvation and therefore good news for the children of Israel. However, Luke's precisely written records of that coming are also called by us the gospel, the gospel of Luke. The attestations and, and, and witnesses so far as Luke could compile them. And Paul must have employed those records in the relation of his message. If Paul's gospel and Luke's gospel are not one and the same, even though neither of them are totally complete, then are there two separate gospels? Well, of course not. And those who would take my words out of context are simply nitpicking without considering the big picture. Paul's gospel was indeed Luke's gospel. Luke's records were indeed incorporated into Paul's gospel. When Paul talks about the gospel, he means Luke's records with all certainty. However, Luke's records alone are not the complete gospel. For that, we need all the witnesses we could get, and we still don't have everything. Luke's gospel is not complete by itself, and neither are any of the others. So my statement is correct, and I do not retract it. If you examine them, the, the statement in context and understand what the gospel truly is, 
the gospel has to include basically the entire scripture. And even that is not complete. With this, I will commence with my series on the Gospel of Luke, with Luke chapter 15, verse 1. Then all of the tax collectors and the wrongdoers were approaching him, meaning Christ, to hear him. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were murmuring, saying, that he receives wrongdoers, or sinners, and eats together with them. So he spoke to them this parable, saying, Which man from among you, having a hundred sheep, and losing one of them, would not leave behind the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go for that which is lost, until he should find it? And finding it, places it upon his shoulder, rejoicing. And coming to the house, will call together friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, because I found my sheep which is lost. I say to you that thusly there shall be joy in heaven upon the repenting of one wrongdoer, rather than upon ninety-nine righteous who have no need of repentance. A lot may be said of this allegory, Aside from the illustration of how valuable each and every one of the sheep are to their shepherd, which is yet another illustration that all Israel shall indeed be saved. There are a hundred sheep, comparatively. This is an allegory. And the 99 are left in the wilderness while the one which is lost is pursued. Note that the 99 are not in the stables, for instance, in the temple at Jerusalem. Or in some civilized safe haven, the 99 are in the wilderness, and they're left in the wilderness. Note also that the sheep do not seek the shepherd, but rather that the shepherd seeks the sheep. In John chapter 10, Christ speaks of the sheep, which he has in another fold, which ostensibly are not in Judea, because he's addressing Judeans in Judea when he makes the statement. And he says, from John 10:14, I am the good shepherd, and I know mine, and mine know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life on behalf of the sheep. And I have other sheep which are not from this fold, and these it is necessary for me to bring, and they shall hear my voice, and they shall be one flock, one shepherd. We often see this allegory in the New Testament of the people for whom Christ came the only people for whom Christ came, according to his words in Matthew chapter 15, the children of Israel, compared to lost sheep. So I thought I would take this opportunity to discuss the lost sheep and what they are at length. The comparison of the children of Israel to sheep, and especially to lost sheep, 
was made quite often in the Gospels, but it was first made in the prophets. For example, Isaiah 53, 6 speaks of the children of Israel and nobody else, where it says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. In that messianic prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53, it is clearly illustrated that the iniquity which Christ took upon himself is the iniquity of the children of Israel alone. And only the children of Israel are the so-called lost sheep. For that, we should examine what became of the lost sheep Israelites, beginning with the prophet Ezekiel. And I'd like to read Ezekiel chapter 34 in its entirety. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat, and ye clothe you with the wool. You kill them that are fed, but ye feed not the flock. The diseased have ye not strengthened. This verse right here is fairly important in understanding the New Testament miracles of Christ. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither have you healed that which was sick, neither have you bound up that which was broken, neither have you brought again that which was driven away, neither have you sought that which was lost, but with force and with cruelty you have ruled them. Christ and his ministry had done all of those things, proving that he alone is the true shepherd. Ezekiel 34, 5. And they were scattered, because there is no shepherd. And they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh. As I live, saith Yahweh God, surely because my flock became a prey, and my flock became meat to every beast of the field, because there was no shepherd. Neither did my shepherds search for my flock, but the shepherds fed themselves, and not my flock. Therefore, O ye shepherds, hear the word of Yahweh, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand, and cause them to cease from feeding the flock. Neither shall the shepherds feed themselves any more, for I will deliver my flock from their mouth, that they may not be meat for them. For thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. The sheep do not seek the shepherd. The shepherd seeks the sheep. As a shepherd seeks out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep 
and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. Only the children of Israel are the lost sheep. No one else can fit this description here. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and I will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. And they shall lie in a good field and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will cause them to lie down, saith Yahweh God. I will seek that which was lost. Only the children of Israel can fit the description of the lost sheep being sought by Christ, who came, Matthew fifteen twenty four, but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and strong. I will feed them with judgment. Woe to you, rich men. And as to you, O my flock, thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but you must tread down with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet. And as for my flock, they eat that which you have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which you have fouled with your feet. Therefore thus saith Yahweh God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and the lean cattle, because you have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till ye have scattered them abroad. Therefore will I save my flock. All Israel will be saved. And they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle. And I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them. That corresponds with the words of Christ just quoted from John chapter 10. Even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I, Yahweh, will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, Yahweh, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace. And will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land. And they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them in the places round about my hill a blessing. And I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing. And the tree of the field shall yield her fruit. And the earth shall yield her increase. And they shall be safe in their land. And shall know that I am Yahweh. When I have broken the bands of their yoke. And delivered them out of the hand of those that serve themselves of them. Devour them. I'm sorry. And they shall be no more a prey to the heathen. That would be translated to Gentiles in the New Testament. They shall be no more a prey to the nations. 
Neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely. And none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, Yahweh their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, the sheep of the house of Israel, the sheep are nobody but the house of Israel, are my people, saith Yahweh God, and ye my flock, the flock of my pasture, speaking to the house of Israel, are men, Adam, and I am your God, saith Yahweh God. By the time Ezekiel wrote this prophecy, practically all of the ten northern tribes of Israel had long been taken away into the Assyrian captivity, all except for a small remnant. A great portion of the kingdom of Judah was also taken away by the Assyrians, except for a remnant in the outlying areas and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, which the Assyrians besieged but failed to capture. Additionally, long before the Assyrian captivity, the Israelites had been colonizing Western Europe. By the time of Christ, many of the nations of Europe had descended from Israelites who migrated west long before the Assyrian captivity. Altogether, these were the sheep which had wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill, as we read in Ezekiel 34.6. As for these people, and among other prophecies, Isaiah 66.19 tells us exactly where to find them. As Yahweh tells us in that passage, speaking of the dispersed children of Israel, speaking of the people of the captivity, and I will set a sign among them, and I will send those that escape of them unto the nations, to Tarshish, which we find in southern Spain, to Pol, another name for Assyria itself, after their king, and Lud that draw the bow, Lud, the Semitic Lydians, the people of Lydia in Anatolia, to Tubal, Tubal was a Japhethite tribe that lived on the Black Sea, and Javan, Javan, or the Yavana of the Ionian Greeks. To the isles afar off that have not heard my fame, neither have seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. The only people in history who appeared in all of these places after Isaiah wrote these things, are the Germanic people, the Scythian descendants of the deported Israelites. And they began to do so barely 200 years after Isaiah wrote his prophecy. The gospel 
went out immediately to the European nations because that is where the dispersed children of Israel were. Those peoples were the lost sheep. They were the only lost sheep. Only they were the lost sheep. And they still are to this day. The one flock, one shepherd statement of John chapter 10, verse 16, is parallel to Ezekiel chapter 37. We've also seen that it's parallel to parts of Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 37, 15. The word of Yahweh came again unto me, saying, Moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write upon it for Judah, and for the children of Israel, his companion. Then take another stick and write upon it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim. And for all the house of Israel, his companions. And join them one to another into one stick. And they shall become one in thine hand. And when the children of thy people shall speak unto thee, saying, Wilt thou not show us what thou meanest by these, saying unto Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel his fellows, and will put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks whereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes, and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the nations whither they be gone, the nations to which they were deported by the Assyrians, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land, which happened when they were brought to Europe. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel. And one king shall be king to them all. And they shall no more be two nations. Neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people and I will be their God. And David my servant shall be king over them and they shall all have one shepherd. Nobody else is included in this. They shall all walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. An honest comparison of the words of Christ concerning the lost sheep with the words of the prophets proves the Christian identity and covenant Theology message to be true beyond doubt. The lost sheep can only be the children of Israel and can never be anybody else. Ezekiel chapter 34, 
Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. Luke 15, 8. Or what woman having ten drachmas should lose one drachma? Would not ignite a lamp and sweep the house and seek carefully until when she would find it. And finding it would call together lady friends and women neighbors saying, Rejoice with me because I found the drachma which I had lost. Thusly I say to you, there is joy at the presence of the messengers of Yahweh upon the repenting of one wrongdoer. Again, the comparison infers that Yahweh shall indeed recover every one of his children, every one of the lost sheep shall be recovered. There is an important cultural note which must be made here, which is not usually observed in the standard references. They are the phrases translated in the Christogenia New Testament as lady friends and women neighbors. Those phrases are translations of Greek nouns of the feminine gender as opposed to the masculine gender nouns of the phrase friends and neighbors which appear which appears in verse 6 of this chapter where a man is involved where a shepherd is involved their friends and neighbors in the masculine where a woman is involved, the friends and neighbors are in a feminine gender, in Greek. Therefore, it says lady friends and women neighbors in the Christogenian New Testament. The usage of these masculine and feminine nouns reveals a normal element of moral culture which has, unfortunately, broken down in the modern West, in ancient Greece, in the ancient world, whether it be Greek, Hebrew, or Roman, men had male friends and male neighbors for companions. And women had female friends and female neighbors for companions. As a rule, men of the time did not have casual female friends. They would be considered whores. And women of the time did not have casual male friends. That was also not true long ago in Western society, where at one time men didn't even talk to a woman unless they were formally introduced by one of the men of her family. Now, Western society is morally debased by the Jewish ideals of revolutionary Europe, the French Revolution especially. In classical Greece, women were by custom not even to look directly at men who were not kin. For instance, in Euripides' 
Hecuba, which is the name of a play and of the title character. And Euripides, Euripides was one of the tragic poets of the 5th century B.C. In Euripides' Hecuba, lines 968 through 975, the title character states that custom, and I quote, ordains that women shall not look directly at men. Women did not have male, casual male friends, and men didn't have casual female friends. The language of the gospel betrays that facet of a moral society which is lost on us today. Luke 15 verse 11 Then he said, A certain man has two sons, and the younger of them said to the father, Father, give to me the allotted portion of the property. And the Greek word is translated the Greek phrase is translated literally here, but it basically means the inheritance, that portion of the father's property which would fall to the son as an inheritance. So he divided the substance with them, and after not many days gathering everything, the younger son traveled abroad to a distant land and there squandered his property, living profligately. That word squandered is literally scattered abroad. Sayer's Greek-English lexicon agrees that in this context it should be squandered. Verse 14. Then upon his spending everything, there came a severe famine upon that land, and he began to be in want. And going, he joined himself to one of the citizens of that land who then sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he desired to be fed from the husks of which the swine were eating, yet no one gave to him. That word husks is literally the little horns, the references to the carob, which is shaped. Carob pods would be the, the more accurate rendering carob pods being shaped like little horns in the eyes of the Greeks. And coming to his senses, he said, how many employees of my father have abundance of bread, but I perish here in famine. Now the phrase rendered coming to his senses is literally and coming into himself. The word mystios is translated as employee. It only appears in these passages of Luke in the New Testament. It's literally someone who is salaried or hired. Verse 18. Arising, I shall go to my father, and I shall ask him, Father, I did wrong to heaven and before you. No longer am I worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your employees. And arising, he went to his father. Yet upon his still being afar off, his father seeing him, then had been deeply moved and running, fell upon his neck and kissed him. But the son said to him, Father, I did wrong to heaven and before you. No longer am I worthy to be called your son. 
make me as one of your employees. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and clothe him, and provide rings for his hands and sandals for his feet. And bring the fattened calf, sacrifice and eating we should celebrate. Because he, my son, was dead and lives again. He was lost and is found. And he began to celebrate. There is a message here which may not be evident to some. The sinner repenting should not merely be sorry for his sins, but in addition should be willing to go to the extent even to do the will of God as if he were a hired servant rather than as if he were a privileged son. The father here, recognizing the extent and more importantly the sincerity of the son's repentance because of that attitude, was more than happy to accept him back as a son and to reward him beyond where he would have been if he had never left in the first place. The father was happy enough simply regaining his son, seeing him afar off, and wishing to celebrate at that moment. The common theme in each of these last three pericopes of Luke chapter 15 where Christ would leave the 99 sheep behind to seek the one. Where the woman would rejoice over the recovery of one coin when she had had ten. But that one was so important to her that she would celebrate its recovery. Here, the profligate son who wasted everything he had, yet upon his repentance and return to his father. He's given a position higher than that which he, lived, he had left. All tell us that no matter how big a sinner we are, our entire race, upon its repentance, will be placed back into the favor of our father. All Israel shall be saved. Whether you repent in this life or in the next, you will repent before or when you face your maker. As Paul says in 1 Timothy, or maybe it's in 2 Timothy, I'm sorry, I forget. Some men send their sins ahead to the judgment. Those are the men who repent now. Others follow after. Those men, those others, they will repent when they see their maker and their judge. There's no doubt. Just like Christ preached to the spirits in prison, those who had sinned more than anyone at the time of the flood of Noah and were destroyed in it. All Israel shall be saved. There should be no doubt from the message of the gospel. Anyone who scoffs at that is a hater of his brethren and seeks to justify his own righteousness, seeks to be self-righteous.
noted the son said in his quest in his confession that he had done wrong to heaven and before his father. When we squander our inheritance or when we sin against our brother, we do wrong to God in the presence of our brethren. It is Yahweh who supplied the father here with what he may pass on to the son. And it is Yahweh who shall reward them both in turn. Luke 15:25. And his elder son was in the field. And coming as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And calling to one of the servants, he inquired what these things could be. And he said to him, that your brother has come, and your father has sacrificed the fattened calf, because he being healthy has been recovered. Then he was angry and did not wish to enter in. But his father coming out called to him, and replying he said to his father, Behold, I serve you so many years, and at no time have I transgressed your command. Yet to me you have never given a goat, literally a kid or a young goat, in order that I may make merry with my friends or celebrate with my friends. But when that son of yours has come, who has devoured your substance with prostitutes, you have sacrificed the fattened calf for him. So he said to him, so the father said to him, Child, you are always with me. And all things that are mine are yours. But to celebrate and re to rejoice is necessary, because he, your brother, is dead and lives and lost and is found. The older son was envious. But even more than that, the older son was self-righteous. He supposed that he himself should have been celebrated for not having sinned against God and his father, at least apparently. Not only was the elder son envious and self-righteous, but even worse, he was envious of his own brother, to the point of despising him and even referring to him as that son of yours before his father. Christians should never despise their brethren, no matter how well the brethren are rewarded, and even if it is perceived that they do not deserve any reward in the perception of men. Christians should never despise their brethren, no matter how great sinners they are, so long as their brethren are willing to repent. We are all sinners. And in the end, we shall all find room for repentance because all Israel shall indeed be saved. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Then coming forth, Peter said to him, Prince, how many times shall my brother do me wrong that I shall forgive him? As many as seven? Yahshua says to him, I do not say to you as many as seven, but as many as seventy times seven. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 9. He purporting to be in a light and hates his brother is in darkness even now. He loving his brother abides in the light, and there is no offense in him. But he hating his brother is in darkness, and walks in darkness, and knows not where he goes, because the darkness has blinded his eyes. James chapter 2, verse 10. For he who should keep the whole law, but who would fail in one thing, has become liable for all. We are basically all sinners. We are all violators of the law. And we shouldn't nitpick each other if one man is a greater sinner than the other. One John chapter one verse eight. If we should say that we have no guilt, no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we would admit our errors, he is trustworthy and just that he would remit the errors or the sins for us and would cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we should say that we have not done wrong, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. The son, the elder brother, was self-righteous and insisted on being celebrated, even though he did not do as his brother did. Romans 3.23, for all have done wrong, all have sinned, and fall short of the honor of Yahweh. If we have all sinned, and it is certain that we have, how can we condemn our brethren for what we ourselves are also guilty of having done? Rather, we should love our brother and pray for his repentance also, rejoicing along with our Father in heaven upon its fulfillment. We must rejoice along with our Father in heaven upon the repentance of a brother. We shouldn't despise that brother because of what he had done in his past. That's the lesson of the prodigal son. That's the end of chapter 15. Now they introduce Luke chapter 16 from a paper which I had written some years ago entitled Translating Luke 16, 8, and 9. This is the parable of the unrighteous steward. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13 or the parable of the unrighteous steward is perhaps one of the most misunderstood pericopes. Pericope, a pericope is a cutting around, right? A pericope is a section of scripture. It's one of the most misunderstood pericopes in the Bible. The reason for its being so misunderstood is, I believe, due to the poor translations of the text found at verses 8 and 9 of the chapter. And the entire parable must be presented and discussed here. Yet these two verses shall be examined most thoroughly. 
Luke 16, verses 1 through 13, from the Christogenian New Testament. Then he said also, he meaning Christ, of course, then he said also to the students, there was a certain wealthy man who had a steward, and he had suspected him of squandering his possessions. And calling him, he said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give me an account of your stewardship, for you are no longer able to be steward. And the steward said to himself, What shall I do that my master has taken the stewardship from me? I am not able to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do, in order that when I have been removed from the stewardship, they shall receive me into their houses. They, ostensibly meaning the people whom he's about to favor at the expense of his master. And calling on each of those indebted to his master, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred baths of olive oil. So he said to him, take your records and quickly sitting down, write 50. Next he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred cores of grain. He said to him, take your records and write 80. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. We will discuss that and the next verse throughout the rest of this presentation. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness that when you should fail, they, they receive you into eternal dwellings? Verse 10, he who is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And he who is unrighteous with little is also unrighteous with much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous riches, who shall entrust to you the true? And if with that of another you have not been faithful, who will give to you that which is your own? No one servant is able to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will endure the one and despise the other. You are not able to serve Yahweh and riches. A steward here is an oikonomist. One who manages a household and was typically the chief servant on an estate who oversaw all of its operations. This particular steward had been squandering his master's possessions, verse 1, and upon being found out and relieved of his position, he worried about how he may further make his living, which we see in verse 3. Therefore, the steward concocted a plan 
whereby he would win the favor of those who were indebted to his master and hopefully be received by them, ostensibly for further employment. So he called upon each of them and reduced their debts in the household records, instructing them to do likewise. Verses 4 through 7. This is no different than if he had stolen his master's property in order to bribe the debtors. Not being told specifically the reactions of the debtors, we might assume that each of them went along with the scheme of the steward. Yet somehow the master had discovered the acts of the unrighteous steward, verse 8. Perhaps one of his debtors was honest and informed him of the steward's actions. We are not told as much. Surprisingly, this master praised the steward for what he had done yet not for the reason that many may think. Here, the Greek word for race at verse 9, a word which most versions errantly translate as generation, should be defined. Genea, Strong's number 1074, is a race, a stock, or a family. It is race here after the basic meaning of the word and not, as it may be in some contexts, and as Liddell and Scott define the word secondary uses, either a race in the sense of a generation, and let me say that when, when the word is used in the sense of a generation, it does not lose the connotation of race or an age, a time of life, as it is sometimes used, as we understand the term generation. That the word should be raised here is evident without resorting to any other biblical references. But from the full statement here in this verse, in these verses alone, it is evident that the word should be translated race and I shall endeavor to elucidate that. The full clause, and I'll read the Greek, so suffer with me. Hoki oichwioi, which is because the sons. Tu ahionis, tutu, which is of this age. Tronimotoroi, which is wiser. And the word R is inferred, R wiser. Hubertos huios tophotos, which is than the sons of light. Wiser than the sons of light. Ice tangenean tain hotone. R towards their own race. That statement shall be examined here. Hoti, because, oi huioi, the sons, because the sons, this is Luke 16, 
I apologize. This is Luke 16.8. The phrase the sons is in a nominative case, and therefore it is the subject of the clause. To Ahionis Tauto, if I'm pronouncing that right, I'm probably butchering it right, means of this age. And the pronoun refers to what precedes the pronoun, meaning this refers back to age, of this age. Ahionis is the genitive singular of the word ahion, or eon, as we say it in English. The word is a period of existence. The word eon is an age. It's a generation sometimes in some contexts. It's a long space of time. It's an era. It's an epoch. It's a period, a period of time. This word is the source of our English word eon, and usually in the New Testament, it infers a long period of time. And so, it may be presumed to be equivalent to the span of many generations as we use the term today. Understanding this word is important. If the word ahion or eon indeed infers such a long space of time here in Luke 16.8, then the word genea must be rendered race. It can't be rendered generation. Since many generations would be required to fill this age. Yet, if the word eon infers a shorter duration, for instance, a single generation or era, genea still must be rendered race in this passage. Since many generations, uh, I'm sorry, since if it wasn't rendered race, the use of the word is redundant and it becomes meaningless. Examine Luke 16.8. The King James Version translators must have realized this predicament and therefore here, as they did elsewhere, they rendered the word eon as world. Now the word world to us is spatial. We picture the planet as the world, right? In, in modern English. The word eon cannot have a spatial meaning. The word eon can only refer to a period of time. It cannot refer to a, to a space. It cannot refer to something physical. It cannot refer to the planet. Eon is only a period of time. So the very fact that there are references to a genea and an eon here in the same clause, in the same sentence, by itself, no matter how you interpret that word eon, it has to be a period of time. 
The very fact that both words exist in a sentence proves that genea has to be translated race in this sentence. Otherwise, it makes no damn sense at all. Tony Motoroy Hooper here are wiser beyond. The word R comes from the last word of the clause, actually, and, and that's a common device in Greek. Tosweos, the next phrase, the sons, here is in the accusative case, which distinguishes the noun as the object of a verb or of certain prepositions. Here, the phrase rendered the sons is the object of the preposition hooper, or beyond, which in the Christogeny New Testament appears as van, T-H-A-N. This is in reference to the sons of light. The next word, tophotos, or the next phrase, I should say. Photos is the genitive singular of phos. The genitive case expresses possession, source, or measurement. Here, the sons, the preceding noun, belongs to it, the sons of light. The next word is ice. It's a preposition used only with the accusative case. And the phrase tanganeon, this race, which follows, is in the accusative case. And it means to or into, among other things. It could mean towards or in regard to or for. In certain contexts, it may be rendered in, but it's not commonly in. The King James here has it as in, in their generation. It can only really be rendered in where the English metaphor or the English idiom, I should say, commands it, such as the English phrase, to look in the face, rather than literally to look at the face or to look towards the face, because we really never look in somebody's face, right? That's just the way we say it in English. That's an idiomatic use of the word in. We really look at somebody's face. Here, the word ice is rendered towards, and that is a proper rendering of the word according to its literal sense. The next phrase is important. Tanganeon, tain Hatone, which is rendered their own race. Literally, it means the race that is of themselves. The articles Tain and Ganaan are all in the accusative case, and therefore they are the object of the preposition ice. While the pronoun Hatone is in the genitive plural, and reflects back to the subject, according to the grammars. And so here, the phrase tangenean, the Greek grammar betrays this phrase as belonging to one party only. It can't refer to both parties. It has to reflect back to the subject of the statement, which, in the context of this passage, are the sons of this age who are the subject of the clause. 
And in another way, the word genea must again be rendered race and not generation. And that's because the sons of both this age and the sons of light are obviously contemporaneous. And therefore, they share the same period of time. There are multiple proofs here that the word genea must be rendered race in this passage and not generation. Here it should now be manifest that the sons of this age and the sons of light are surely two separate races. Only one of them is the subject of this clause. Which have vied with each other throughout the age. They're, they're set opposite to each other in this passage. And I believe that Christ is making a reference to Genesis 3.15. The phrases sons of light and sons of this age must represent two different races because of the passage which reads in English, their own race. And that passage can only refer to one of the two parties. In Greek grammar, it must refer to the subject of the clause. It can't refer to both parties of this, their own race. Therefore, the phrases sons of light and sons of this age representing two different races can only be metaphors for the parties of Genesis 3.15. For the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And these two races are contrasted throughout the New Testament, the parable of the wheat and the tares, for instance. Romans chapter 9, Paul's words comparing Jacob and Esau, Revelation 2.9, Revelation 3.9, John chapter 8. There are many examples. In first century Judea, the seed of the serpent was represented by the Edomite Jews who descended from Esau. We have the Edomite Jews who descended from Esau, as Paul compares them in Romans chapter 9, in the Judea of the time of Christ. And along with them, there were other Canaanite or mixed races of the larger region. And they were brought into Judaism. They were folded into the religion of Judea by the Maccabees, from about 130 B.C. There are multiple historical witnesses of that. And we have the seed of the woman, who were Paul's kinsmen according to the flesh, those true Judeans who were a remnant of pure Israelites who descended from those who returned from the captivity. We have Christ comparing the sons of light and the sons of this age in this parable. The comparison has to follow through the entire scripture. And wherever we see such comparisons, it is fully evident 
that Israelites and Edomites are being compared, especially in Romans chapter 9. Therefore, this verse is translated, and this translation is quite literal. It's perfectly literal. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely, because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. And that phrase, towards their own race, the Greek grammar insists, can only refer to the subject of the clause, the sons of this age. So we see that two races in Luke 16.8 are being set in opposition to one another. The Greek grammar insists on that. We see that the word genea, towards their own race, that word genea rendered race, there are at least three arguments, all valid, all of them have to be upheld by any honest grammarian that insist that that, must, that word must be rendered race and cannot be rendered generation as a space of time. Because the word age is definitely a space of time. And therefore, if both words here were rendered as a space of time, the passage is totally nonsensical. The master commended the unrighteous steward because the sons of this age are expected to act unrighteously. The master commended the unrighteous steward because he did exactly as the traits of his race would demand. Now to proceed to Luke 16, 9, where Christ asks rhetorically, but it's not translated this way in most translations, and I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness, that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? The word riches is mammonas. It's mammonas in the Greek in verses 9, 11, and 13 in this chapter. It's mammon in the King James Version. I simply translated it riches. Liddell and Scott define it as a Syrian deity. Mammonas is a Syrian deity, the god of riches. Hence, it means riches or wealth in the NT, in the New Testament. Yet, translating this verse, Luke 16, 9, my differences with the King James Version are much greater than this, right? Luke 16, 9 is very naturally read as a question. And neither the King James Version nor the Nestle Land Novum Testamentum Greca, nor any of the other versions which I've seen read Luke 16, 9 as a question. As far as I know, I could be wrong, but as far as I know, only the Christogenian New Testament reads Luke 16.9 as a question, and I would stand by my decision to do so to this day. And going into the future, I'm that confident. 
Many commentators use this verse, Luke 16:9, as a statement to justify the wicked methods of the dishonest steward, which basically amount to stealing. So much drivel, and I'll call it drivel, has been written concerning Luke 16:9 because it's being a rhetorical question has been overlooked by so many commentators. The construction of the verbs here very naturally makes for a rhetorical question where a verb of the indicative mood is followed by a verb of the subjunctive mood. Poiesate, the future indicative of the verb poieo, Strong's number 4160 here is shall you make, and it's rendered as a question in the Christian New Testament. The later verb, eclipe, is the aorist subjunctive of eclipo, and it's when you should fail, preceded by hotan. And it may have been written when you might fail. Likewise, the verb dexontahi is the aorist subjunctive of dekomahi, Strong's number 1209. And it's in the third person plural, they may receive you or they might receive you. A pattern, a grammatical pattern of verbs very similar to this one is found in Galatians 6.5, which I also read as a rhetorical question in the Christogenian New Testament but which the King James Version has as a statement. The indicative mood, the first verb here, poiesate, is in the indicative mood, is often used in inter- interrogation, even without an interrogatory particle. And this is often done by Luke. There are countless examples of it, both in his gospel and in the Acts. Or at least there are many examples of it. The arrangement of the verbs here and the indicative mood followed by the subjunctive mood very very naturally makes for for a rhetorical question shall you do this that you might obtain that would be an example of the pattern of the verbs shall this happen that that might happen is a rhetorical question now biblical evidence that in context this interpretation of Luke 16:9 is the correct one meaning that Luke 16.9 is indeed a rhetorical question, is quite plain. Because first, the commandment states that thou shalt not steal. If Christ is making a flat statement here, if Christ is making a plain statement here, as the King James and many other translations have it, then it seems that Christ is endorsing embezzlement in this parable. And Christ is certainly not endorsing embezzlement. Second, the friends of the unrighteous steward 
cannot receive that steward into any eternal dwelling. For only Yahweh our God can do such a thing as that. Third, plainly, verse 13 states that one cannot serve both Yahweh and riches simultaneously. Therefore, this is a rhetorical statement, and the obvious answer to the, I'm sorry, this is a rhetorical question, and the obvious answer to this rhetorical question is a resounding no. The real lesson of the parable of the unrighteous steward is evidently the steward being one of the sons of this age, that he acted as those of his race are expected to act. He acted craftily because they don't have a reward hereafter. The people whom he favored, Luke 16.9 being a rhetorical question, the people whom he favored cannot receive him into eternal dwellings. The sons of light, the true Adamic Israelites, should not do as the sons of this age do. The sons of light, the children of Israel, they have their eternal dwelling with Yahweh. There is no other eternal dwelling. Therefore, the sons of light should store their treasure there. An admonishment we see often in the scriptures. Therefore, Luke 16, 8, and 9 should be read. And the master praised the unrighteous steward because he did wisely. Because the sons of this age are wiser than the sons of light are towards their own race. They take care of each other all the time. And I say to you, shall you make for yourselves friends from the riches of unrighteousness that when you should fail, they may receive you into eternal dwellings? Well, of course, they cannot. We, the children of light, pursuing mammon, have no reward in mammon. Very simple. The children of this age, the sons of this age, they have no reward in heaven. It's theirs to pursue mammon. It's their lot in life to pursue mammon. The unrighteous steward did according to his spirit, which is not the spirit of God, and he was commended for it because he acted as he would have been expected to act. We should not act in that manner. Verse 9 is a rhetorical question, and the answer to it, of course, is no. That is the real interpretation of the parable of the unrighteous steward. That's the end of my presentation for tonight. I will pick up here next week where I've just left off.
Thank you for listening, and praise Yahweh. I will be here tomorrow night with Sword Brethren. We will be doing part three of our paper. Well, the paper which we've been presenting from Mark Weber on the treachery of Franklin Roosevelt in perpetrating the Second World War. Praise Yahweh, and good night.